Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. With President-elect Biden just weeks away from uh, entering the White House, markets are discounting what it means for financial assets, particularly from a tax-adjusted basis. And that is obviously very important for the wealthy and ultra-wealthy in the markets to get a sense of kind of what they're thinking. We are fortunate to welcome back to the show Michael Sonnenfeld, chairman and founder of Tiger 21. Uh, Tiger 21 is a peer membership organization for high net worth creators and preservers of wealth, helping to navigate uh, through the challenges and opportunities that success that success creates. Michael, thanks so much for joining us again here. Uh, you know, we're now back to having a Democrat in the White House. One of the assumptions is that taxes may be going up. What are some of your members, uh, what are they reacting? What are they saying about a Biden presidency? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. It's great to be with you. Um, our members are very focused on taxes. Uh, historically, though, what they said is it was more about whether the money was being well spent by the government uh, and less about the absolute level of taxes. Uh, we just did a recent survey uh, across our membership, and uh, um, a, a difference of as much as five or ten, per- as little as five or ten percent in the tax rate uh, would get some of our members to move. Uh, to lower tax states, uh, a lot of people moving out of California and New York. So it's really a warning that there are limits on a state basis. And on the federal basis, uh, most of our members think that if you have a divided government, if the uh, Republicans uh, maintain control of the Senate, uh, the most sweeping tax changes are a little less likely. Why do they at a certain point stop trusting government so they'll pay a certain amount of tax but then suddenly they've decided that what the government will spend the rest of the extra tax on is not what they would want the government to spend it on is that it so there's obviously a wide range of opinion uh among our membership uh, most of our members uh, come from very uh, middle and lower middle class backgrounds and have started with very little and bootstrapped into great success. These are some of the great entrepreneurs. So there is a sense of individualism and uh, um, wanting to uh, create incentives. So the the topic that comes up the most is, of course, a government needs to pave the roads and have a military. But when taxes start becoming instruments of policy of wealth redistribution, Some of our members think that goes beyond what prudent tax policy should be. But others are, frankly, quite aware of the inequality in our society and are struggling to think about how the uh, dispersion of wealth, the uh, inequality, uh, can best be uh, addressed. So, Michael, given the pandemic uncertainty, given the political uncertainty, which now seems to be more certain, how have your members been preparing their portfolios for 2021 and beyond? Sure. Um, earlier in the year, we had a historic rise in cash. Um, over the last uh, decade, our members have generally held about 12% in cash, never more than 13% and never less 
than 11%. And all of a sudden, in the first quarter of this year, members rose cash to levels close to 20%, high teens, 19%. It was not only the largest shift, but the fastest shift we ever recorded. So once the pandemic hit, people were really battening down the hatches. And when you have complicated portfolios, making sure you have enough cash becomes far more important than what your returns are because you don't want to default on obligations and you don't want to miss opportunities. Um, you know, as the year has progressed, obviously the markets have been uh, extraordinary and uh, our members have recorded uh, really amazing returns. And that was before November. November returns are coming in. Uh, just this morning, I was looking at the first three hedge funds uh, to report in my own portfolio with 10 plus percent returns. Uh, so our members are uh, reporting over 10 percent returns for the year. My guess is they'll end up at mid-teens, depending on uh, December. And they're back to technology and healthcare on the public sector side, uh, technology particularly as uh, the long-term best bet. Um, I think we've talked about in prior shows that our members have had a bias towards technology for the last couple of years as the number one area of focus intensified with uh, alternative, um, uh, with AI, artificial intelligence. And uh, that, was, that turned out to be an amazing bet. Our single largest stock has historically been Apple, but all of the fangs uh, have been favorites among our members and what a year they've had. Real quick, Michael, what, what was the hard asset of choice for people deploying some of that cash that they raised at the beginning of year? Uh, so, you know, real estate is still the largest asset class, but there's no asset class that's had more turmoil within real estate on the industrial side. It's just been on fire. The entire shift to online sales has created needs for warehousing from which all those online purchases get delivered. So that's been the, the, the top favorite. Well, it is funny you should mention that because we yep. just had a headline crossing the Bloomberg that KKR is nearing a deal for a portfolio of U.S. warehouses. It would be an $800 <laughs> yep. million dollar deal. Michael, we're out of time, but thank you for joining. Always a pleasure. Michael Sonnenfeld is chairman and founder of Tiger 21. And as a group, it has $77 billion in assets under management, taking care of the ultra wealthy. And really just uh, chatting among one another about how things uh, should get done on, on all sides of the table. So we thank Michael very much. Let's bring in somebody who's listening to that interview now and who knows all about this, Sam Fazelli, Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Sam, we were listening to the BioNTech uh, guest who talked about, about this wonderful news that Britons will start getting a shot. Why Britain first? This, this vaccine was made in the US and in Germany, and while it's great that anybody is getting it, this is, this is the beginning of the argument, you know, who goes first? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I mean the, the, the speed with which regulators uh, want to get to um, look at uh, drugs and, and, and make their decisions is different. Some have more um, layers of approval requirements, etc. So there's a lot of argument and discussion going on about why the UK went first and got there first before the EMA. When it comes to distributing, um, you know, the press, the press conference that the UK had was pretty clear about... Um, the direction they're going, and that is healthcare workers and then uh, um, at-risk uh, people, which are usually the older folks who live in um, 
often in the care homes, etc. So it will be by age, and I think it will be the same in the United States, and I suspect it will be pretty much the same as in Europe. I think everyone's kind of made up their minds on that one. Hey, Sam, here in the United States, we have a fairly large percentage of the population that is generally anti-vaccine for a variety of reasons. Is that, is that a typical, is that, is that a, do you have a similar issue in the UK and across Europe? Um, yeah, uh, you know, Paul, I think it varies depending on geography and even within a country. So I've even heard, for instance, eastern Massachusetts being likely to go into the 80-90% level, but then you go f- further west and, and the numbers drop massively. We've also got the situation in um, in France that out of the European countries, it appears to be, in surveys at least, one of the more reticent uh, uh, countries. So it will vary country by country. We basically need about 50 to 60 percent of people to take this vaccine, um, uh, given that there's 10 to 20 percent who would have been infected along the way anyway, to get us to that herd immunity number. So it's not like we need to vaccinate everybody. Yeah, and it's great news that it's starting. Uh, quickly, though, on the regulators approving this, did the European Union regulators not have to get this approved as well? Explain to us how Britain managed to get this all done sort of unilaterally. Yeah, but the U- UK is, um, uh, you know, within, within the rules of their, um, during emergencies, etc., they do have the option to go, uh, you know, away from the European Union's uh, EMA, European Medicines Association, uh, which is... Um, which is what they've done. So this is, um, uh, and, and I think what the process was and why the UK was faster than Europe versus the FDA, I think a lot of that comes down to how much resources you throw at it. I can't, I cannot accept that the European, that the UK regulated cut corners to get to this. Um, they've been engaged with Pfizer and other regulators since June, looking at manufacturing, all the other work that needs to be done. So I just can't believe that this one week difference will make an enormous amount of difference to people in terms of what data they see. Suddenly, they're going to see a lot more data than the UK has. Mm. Hey, Sam, you're, you've been covering this pharmaceutical game for decades here. You actually have a PhD in the, the crazy science behind all this. Do you personally care and do you think uh, patients in general should care which vaccine they get? Or are you going to take just the first thing that gets offered to Sam Fazelli. Yeah, so I think, um, Paul, that will come down to the efficacy, but, but I, and we, so we need to see the data. The data I've seen so far from Pfizer-BioNTech versus Moderna, I, you know, I will take either one of them that's offered to me. The Pfizer-BioNTech one appears to be, and those are carefully chosen words, until we see more data, more tolerable in terms of you get less fever, you get less body aches. But frankly, if it comes down to it and says, Sam, you're going to have to wait a year for that one, but we can give you Moderna now, um, I think I'll just, that would be a very easy question to answer. Of course, I'll say yes to that. Sam, this is then honestly just fantastic news. We're beginning to get the rollout of the vaccine. The vaccine works. And, you know, can we all go home and rest peacefully? Or are there things that still stick out and uh, bother you? Like, do we know, for example, if there are going to be longer term effects? Do we know if we're going to need another vaccine in nine months? Yes, yeah, so there are. The, so, so what what does bother me, uh, Bonnie, is is not is not um, long term side effects and all that. I, th- I think, you know, we've had a lot of vaccines developed, and, and it's, if essentially they have pretty similar, very rare side effect issues, which are related to the immune system, but very rare. So I'm not worried about that. What I am worried about is that the virus, as soon as we start putting pressure on it, i.e. 
pushing people to be vaccinated and therefore they have an immune response, that we end up what's called clonal selection. We end up selecting a, a, a version of the virus that's less susceptible to our vaccine. Now, as you just heard, BioNTech, um, Alex and, and Guy were asking the BioNTech executive about mutations. They said they've studied 10 mutations and the vaccine's equally uh, efficacious in those settings. I don't know. He didn't really answer the question about that particular mutation I asked about. But it doesn't really matter. There are others that will come along that might escape our vaccine. But remember that we've got a technology that you can go back and change the sequence, change the RNA that you give people and get a new vaccine out. I mean, it would take time, but we have to watch out for that. Hey, Sam, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective and your experience here. Sam Fazelli, senior pharmaceutical analyst, and he's also the head of the entire Bloomberg Intelligence European Research Operation. So he's a busy person these days giving us his latest thoughts on the vaccine. Well, let's welcome in now a very special guest joining us from the University of Missouri's Law School. Frank Bowman is professor at Mizzou Law and has written a book on... Well, let's give the title. High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. Thank you for so much joining us, Frank. Frank, you know, there's a lot of talk about presidential pardons these days and the potential for the president to pardon really anybody in his family or even himself. Can he do that? We have to distinguish between two possible types of pardons. One, a pardon of himself and the uh, the other, a pardon of other people. In my view... uh, a president cannot constitutionally pardon himself. Um, there's a complex array of reasons why that's so, um, although it's never been tested. Um, now, with respect to pardoning members of his family or people around him, that I think is clear. I think he can do that, although it's possible that, um, depending on the circumstances of such a pardon, uh, the pardon itself might be a crime. Mm. So, Professor... It, it, for pardons to be issued, don't they have to be issued against someone who's been convicted of something as opposed to kind of preemptively issuing blanket pardons? No. Um, actually, a pardon can be issued for any conduct that occurred prior to the issuance okay. of the pardon, whether it was it has been investigated or indicted. Uh, we have several very significant instances of that occurring in our own history. For example, after the Civil War, Andrew Johnson pardoned many thousands of former Confederates who would potentially have been liable for the very serious crime of treason, but who had never been charged for it. Similarly, after the Vietnam War, first President Ford and then President Carter uh, gave a, a series of amnesties or pardons to people who would have been prosecutable for and sometimes had been prosecuted for a draft evasion. So there's plenty of, uh, of, of precedent for that. Now, one thing that can't be done is you can't pardon somebody for a crime that hasn't yet been committed, um, nor, I think, can you pardon somebody for a crime which is ongoing. So imagine, just for the sake of argument, that someone in the Trump orbit was currently engaging in, in some kind of crime that continued after he left office. He wouldn't be able to pardon that person for, for a crime that, that continued. Yeah, or hasn't started yet. We're getting very minority report here. But Frank, you mentioned earlier that the pardon itself might be a crime. I'm interested in that because if that wasn't a deterrent, then why wouldn't an outgoing president who who doesn't really 
you know, mind just issue a blanket pardon for anybody that he thinks might ever have or, you know, be implicated in some kind of crime that, you know, might have to deal with that after he's left the presidency. So why would a pardon itself be a crime, potentially? Well, it's only going to be a crime in a, in a very limited set of circumstances. Uh, actually, although we don't yet know, there, of course, is a report uh, about the details, but there is, of course, a report out of Washington that the Justice Department is investigating a essentially contra- campaign contributions for pardon bribery scheme. And uh, anybody involved in an exchange like that, up to and including the president, would be guilty of the separate crime of bribery. Now, there's, we don't have any of the details. We have no indication whatsoever who's involved and certainly no indication that the president himself uh, is involved in such a thing. But just assume hypothetically that a president were to agree to, to take a bribe in response for, to which he would issue a pardon, that would be a freestanding crime. Now, simply issuing a pardon that is you know, broadly self-interested and unseemly is not going to be criminal. And lots of presidents, unfortunately, have done that kind of thing. I mean, uh, President Clinton, for example, issued a series of pardons at the end of his presidency uh, that were very ugly indeed. And indeed, at least one of them, the Mark Rich pardon, I suppose, could have been argued to have been overtly corrupt because Rich had made contributions to the Clintons. Uh, but generally speaking, even unseemly pardons are going to stand and aren't going to be separately prosecutable. Well, can pardons be challenged in any scenario there, uh, Professor, or are they pretty much, uh, you know, etched in stone once they are in fact issued? There's a little disagreement about that. My own view is once a pardon is issued, regardless of the reason it's having been issued, then the pardon itself stands, at least as to the person pardoned. Now, there are there are some people who disagree with that, who, who suggest that um, there are certain ways and or certain occasions on which uh, what they characterize as really self-interested pardons, pardons that uh, in some way benefit uh, the president that denigrate from his uh, his obligation to ensure that the laws be faithfully executed, that those might be challengeable in court. I very much doubt that. Uh, I, I think once the pardon is issued, it's almost certainly going to stand. The president has suggested that he might run again in four years. Uh, would any history of pardons impact any kind of potential future run? Well, I, I think... <laughs> I think in a, in a prior universe, in, in, in the, the political universe that we inherited and inhabited, you know, eight, ten, twenty years ago, for the for the remainder of our history back to 1788, yeah, I think there would be a problem if a president issued a bunch of obviously self-interested pardons, including pardons of himself. I think that would be almost automatically disqualifying. But in our current media environment, wherever where both sides are so heavily siloed, you've already got people within what I might call the, the Trump universe, Fox News and other places, actively suggesting that Trump pardon himself in order to, you know, protect himself against the evil liberals and the operation of the deep state. I think at least among Trump's base, uh, a series of grotesquely self-interested pardons, including one of himself, might not be disqualifying. Whether, uh, you know, that w- would be true for the larger electorates, another question. Professor, what give us a sense of timing here? Should we be expecting some of these pardons really at the last minute, or can they happen at any time? 
Well, because a pardon only covers conduct that's already occurred, the safest time or the most inclusive time to issue a pardon is at the very end of the president's term. Certainly, if he pardons himself, I would expect he'll do that on the very last day, practically the very last minute. Um, but, uh, you know, some other cases, as we've already seen with uh, um, Mr. Flynn, uh, are, are not don't seem to have that kind of uh, time angle. And, uh, you know, we might see a series of pardons leading up to the last day. But I, I think it's not unreasonable to at least imagine that you would get a series of pardons uh, from Mr. Trump issued on the morning of January the 20th. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Frank Bowman, the Floyd R. Gibson, Missouri Endowed Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law based in Columbia, Missouri, talking to us about uh, uh, pardons and uh, that certainly presidents have done uh, uh, pardons, uh, made pardons uh, in the past uh, rather routinely. The expectation is that uh, President Trump will continue to uh, make them uh, as he winds his way down to the last days of his presidency. So what can we expect for the holiday shopping season? We've been talking about it now for a few weeks, pre-Black Friday, but of course, typically, it would remain hot right through the end of the year. Let's bring in Craig Johnson, President of Customer Growth Partners, to tell us exactly what his surveys are telling him. Craig, you've been doing this for a couple of decades now. Have things ground to a halt this year, or do you anticipate that people will spend, even if it's on their credit cards? Well, people are spending. Uh, they may not be spending on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, Monday as much as some people thought, but they are spending. So we went into the season with our 19th annual now preseason forecast up 5.8%, which is above consensus. And based on what we saw for November as a whole, I'm not talking Black Friday, but for just November as an entirety you know, through, uh, through Monday, sales were up about 7%. Um, and for November, they reached $353 billion. And that's entirely consistent with our forecast of 5.8. In fact, the season overall may come in a little bit above 6. So, so Craig, that's, those numbers are... Craig, those numbers are really, really interesting. And, and um, given that you know, there's so much unemployment out there and there's so much angst in the marketplace and so much uncertainty, what do you attribute uh, those growth numbers to? Well, it's a couple of things going on, but the most important is the consumer fundamentals are, are, are overall are very, very strong. Disposable personal income, I'm not talking about the people out of job, but as a whole, as a whole the growth in disposable income is the single biggest, biggest predictor of retail sales. It's up about 6% year over year. Um, that's very strong. Consumer uh, household financials, uh, balance sheets are the healthiest ever with an 8.7% household debt service ratio for the Fed. And the personal savings rate is about 14%. And that personal savings is key because consumers have dry powder of $2.4 trillion on their balance sheets right now. So they don't have to tap into credit cards. Uh, They can buy just out of current cash flow. And that's what's really driving the growth. Are we talking about particular strata of customers, though, Craig? Surely those on food lines and visiting pantries can't be doing this. Um, it, again, it's, it doesn't extend to everybody, obviously. If you're, if, if you're in a household where nobody has a job, you're focusing just on needs and not wants. But for the 90-plus percent 
of the American public uh, 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 that is financially healthy, um, they are spending. And, uh, and again, they have a lot of available cash on hand to spend. Um, and, you know, we're all hoping that, you know, some of the financial aid that coming out of Washington actually uh, eventuates. But in the meantime, the consumers, you know, in the up four of the upper five uh, of the of the five quintiles, uh, they are spending very sharply uh, increase year over year. So it, it's interesting, Craig, we've seen obviously a big pullback in uh, travel, hospitality, spending by consumers. Do you think some of that's getting redirected into just buying stuff? Well, uh, there is a, there is a major rotation in spending, and um, and with at the margin from the categories you mentioned, entertainment, travel, hospitality, etc., uh, is clearly down. Um, and uh, about two hundred and sixty billion dollars uh, uh, has been shifted from those services into the good sectors, and that's a that's a bit that's a big number. Now, it's it's obviously not as big as the anywhere near as big as the two point four trillion dollars they already have on you know on, on hand at home um which is about a doubling of what it was last year 1.2 trillion so they have an incremental 1.2 tr- trillion and then when you add in the 260 billion dollars from from the services from the discretionary services sector um, that is an additional boost uh, as is lower gasoline prices which are around you know about 25 30 cents below last year so you're getting a variety of favorable uh, tailwinds behind the spending so, Craig, do you dive in to see exactly what they're spending on? Are they buying clothes? Are they replenishing durable goods? Are they buying toys? Well, uh, yes to all of the above, but this is overwhelmingly a hard lines Christmas. Soft lines means, you know, apparel and, you know, and, and, and uh, linens and so forth. But the hard lines, and this is, you know, whether consumer electronics, Nintendo Switch, the other, you know, the, the other new video games, the Sony PS4, TVs, iPhone 12s, um, uh, household appliances, either major appliances, uh, refrigerators are sold out in a lot of places and, and until delivery in January, if not February. Um, so it's mainly hard lines, and that means toys, means games, exercise gears, major appliances, the outdoor, outdoor propane heaters, the patio heaters are impossible to find. Uh, uh, and all those are getting sold, air fryers, etc. You know, there is some, you know, some apparel is getting sold, but a hot product, but it's mainly in the footwear categories. You know, the, the Nike uh, Air Max 270, the Air Vapor Max, etc. Those are still very, very hot. So, Craig, this is a, a digital Christmas buying online. Is this just accelerating a trend that we've kind of been seeing here for you know upwards of a decade? Uh, absolutely. For for the last ten years, every year the uh, penetration, of, uh, uh, digital penetration of overall sales has gone up about a point. So, in other words, uh, uh, last year penetration was about eighteen percent. Well, the COVID jumped it immediately up to you know to. to to 25% penetration as of, uh, uh, you know, the, the March, April, May period. And now it's going up another two or three points. So we have basically almost a decade uh, of increase in, in uh, online penetration, all squeezed into less than a year, which is yeah, just interesting. Just, yeah, just extraordinary numbers uh, uh, that we're seeing on the retail sales front. It looks like it's going to be a pretty solid holiday sales, despite all the uncertainty out there. Uh, Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners, we thank you for joining us here, sharing that data. Again, strong, strong November sales. Uh, looks like, uh, again, bringing in a pretty solid uh, holiday shopping season. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.